Thank you very much for the invitation, Helen. And I really welcome this because I think the, the people that we have in the room are people who care deeply about the way that the future of teaching and learning is going to go and what you can do to help it go that way. And what I try to do is, is make the most of um, digital technologies to do that. And I was pretty skeptical about MOOCs when they first arrived because of the hype around them. They were all about how this is going to change the world and we're going to be able to reach um, into uh, everybody's lives to give them higher education. Uh, and it just seemed extremely unlikely, and I think that remains the case. But there are a number of interesting things I think we can do with them and working with them. I want to try and give you a sense of how it might help us with things like um, the impact of pedagogical innovation. So I'm going to talk about it in three sections. Um, what could it do for undergraduate education? And there I think it tends to be rather indirect and second order in the kind of impact it's likely to have. Uh, professional development, I think, is very interesting. I think that can be quite direct. And giving teachers the experience of online learning as they do it and new digital methods of teaching and learning. So that's the second part. Then I think at that point I'll have a, a pause for a bit of discussion and then move on into the educational research bit. What we could we be doing with educational research and how we might use it for orchestrating teacher researcher collaboration in, for example, testing new digital methods for, uh, for teaching and learning and enabling that community to build and curate the community knowledge about teaching and learning. So that, those are the three phases I'm going to talk about. So to begin with, MOOCs for undergraduates, well, um, the, uh, the original intention, I think, and I certainly heard Daphne Collar say this, and she set up Coursera um, back in whenever it was, 2011, 2012, I mean, it was, it was uh, quite a few years ago now. And she was talking about the boy in the Cairo slum who had no access to university and how MOOCs would, would reach such people. And really, when you're thinking about what MOOC pedagogy can do, I think that's probably pretty unlikely. We tried pretty hard with a, a course that we developed through Coursera a few years ago. This was on ICT for primary teachers. And we had this kind of um, study guide style, you might say, um, which was really very mindful of the fact that teachers have no time for any kind of professional development. So you have to be, you have to really go through it very carefully with how you expect them to spend their time. So we had these kinds of activities. Um, we said whether they were optional or not, how long we expected them to take over them. Um, so there were guides for duration. We would give advice on building a course journal in the expectation they wouldn't have time to do everything now, but at least they could put together things which they hoped to, to do in future. Um, access to resources and tools they could come back to, links to forums where they could discuss with each other and learning guidance. So all of this was embedded in this kind of study guide approach. You sort of watch a video and play that, and then you explore this, and then you select this, and so on. So it was quite explicit study guide approach. Now, Coursera's vision was to take this to a different level by making it on demand. So this course ran for six weeks. And of course, people, it's never the right six weeks. So it makes sense to make it on demand so people can come back to it. But in order to run that, they've produced a new kind of interface, and this is how it now looks, and I can't think of anything less inviting, to be honest. Um, so just like most MOOCs, all you can really do is select which week you're going to move into, so there's navigation through the weeks, and then there's a bunch of videos and a bunch of readings, and then there are some discussion forums you can join, but they're quite gener general discussion forums. So it's very much um, an orientation which says, here it all is, now off you go. And it's not thinking about how to sequence, how to prioritize, how to help them find their way through. So even for our teachers, um, primary teachers, where I did wonder if maybe we were sort of hand-holding a bit too much and they wanted a bit more flexibility, so we did test that. But overwhelmingly, they welcome that default narrative of what they're meant to go through, so that then they can they can um, you know distort it completely, of course, and do their own thing. But at least you've given them a sense of what you think would be a reasonable thing for them to be doing. So we felt that was quite important. 
So in terms of undergraduate education, when you look at who's taking them, and the Coursera average here shows that, generally speaking, across all of their MOOCs, um, this is a two or three years old now, this data, but it's not changing that much. 85% of people are people like us. So it's not targeted, really, on what um, students need, um, undergraduate students need. So at the moment, my feeling is that it's not going to be the solution to the problem of how we reach all of those people around the world. Not in itself, not directly. Um, people talk about it as a solution for marketing. So, and they actually say things like, we've had um, nine students come through to our master's course or something because we, we, we ran this MOOC. Well, the MOOC cost them £30,000 and the, the marginal cost um, for each particular student is actually very small. You know, they think of it as getting £10,000 of each student, but it's not. That's what it costs you to teach them. The marginal profit we make for each student is actually very small. So it's not a marketing venture, really. Um, for some universities, I think it is pushing them on the map, and they can think that way, but a lot, they don't need it, really. Uh, so it's questionable as a way of developing um, undergraduate education. But as a way of experimenting with the kinds of things one might do in one's undergraduate course, actually it can be quite useful. And we've certainly found that the, some of the MOOCs that we've developed at, to UCL, some of those ideas have found their way into the, um, certainly postgraduate teaching, and even into undergraduate courses. So it's a kind of Trojan horse for some academics, because a MOOC is attractive, and it puts you out there, and you can get your research out there, and that is quite attractive to academics. But then they have to discover, actually, how interesting this kind of methodology is. You're teaching in a very different way, and it's rewarding. So then they start thinking about bringing it back into their undergraduate curriculum. So for those of you who are trying to persuade academics to take an interest in this, and it's very hard because everybody has to be focused on research all the time, MOOCs can be a useful way in. Okay, so in terms of professional development, um, there, as I said, the, um, the Coursera average is that. When we ran our MOOC for ICT for primary teachers, we got an almost exact same kind of distribution of where people came from. Again, it was, it was almost 90% had degrees, and it's not surprising. This was a MOOC for um, teachers in primary school education, so it was, it was something of that kind. But I think what we conclude from this is that the idea of the MOOC is quite well adapted to what we do in the context of professional development, because very often when people come on the course, a bit like the way today is operating, we share some of the latest ideas, some of the latest thinking, we get people talking, people share ideas with each other, they're valuable to each other. So, as um, professional development, it's pretty good. We're not trying to nurture you as learners. We're nurturing each other as professionals. So, the MOOC pedagogy works quite well for that. We've been trying this out in a series of MOOCs on FutureLearn, which is the only UK MOOC platform. They're located sort of 100 yards that way. Um, and this was about helping teachers to use technology to help learners own their learning. So that they're, they're really, I mean, in vocational education, you've got to help learners have a sense of self-efficacy about their learning. Actually, you have to do that in all sectors, but um, especially in this area. And to become comfortable with experimenting with what digital technologies can do. There were over 18,000 teachers who were active on this, of course, being a MOOC. It's, I haven't explained what it is, actually. I'm just assuming everybody knows. But the, the, they're online courses, and they're open to everyone, and therefore they're massive. So that's the massive open online courses. Um, and you do get tens of thousands of people coming in from all over the world. So, I mean, there was certainly something like from 180 different countries around the world. There is, as always, quite a drop-off. So 18,000 start during those weeks. And these have been running three times over the last year, these two courses. And they do drop off because they're busy people and they, they don't always manage to follow through. But you have reached a lot of people that way. 
and there are still thousands in there at the end, so who've made it all the way through. Okay, so what do they look like? This is one kind of way in which we try to get professionals working together. So they're debating these kinds of innovative pedagogies, and it will start with something like a video. On a lot of steps, there will be a video of this kind, which is presenting new approaches and methods in the field. So we actually go out to colleges or um, pr private training providers and film what they do so that it's an opportunity for teachers who've never been in this kind of field before to get a window on what it looks like. There's someone else like me doing that kind of thing, and that's valuable. So they can empathize with that much more easily. Not long videos, these were a few minutes, um, but they do give you a window on actual practice. Then you have some interviews with people talking about it, sometimes interviews with the students, interviews with the leaders of that college or um, employers who work with the students afterwards, people like that. So you're getting a sense of what that little case study is like. You also have links through to other resources and tools, so you can take them anywhere on the web. Always a good idea to try and bring them back into the discussion. And FutureLearn, you can see the look of that is so different from the look of that Coursera page. Discussion is prominent. You know, you, you expect to be in there with other people like you um, and discussing what's going on. So for one of the um, uh, steps, for example, we were trying to get people using our learning designer tool. And this is explicitly an online tool which is developed to enable teachers to share their pedagogic ideas. So they didn't have to use it, but we invited them to use it. We suggested for a new blended learning design you'd like to develop for your learners, use the learning designer to begin creating the new design in one of the following ways. Either create it in the designer screen, or revise one of the ones we first thought of, which is in there for the VET sector, um, selected from um, your, your particular sector. So you could either have, for those people who are sort of in there already and have great ideas about what they want to do, they could start from scratch. But there's this kind of starter kit of other people's ideas of, of how you develop something. <clears throat> I'm not going to go through the detail of what the learning designer does, but we were using it here as a vehicle for teachers to share their ideas, comment on each other's ideas, think about how they would share learning designs in this new area. So some of the kinds of comments here, this is sort of part way through in the middle. I mean, these discussions, there could be hundreds of people in there. Sometimes people are a bit anxious about not being able to see everything, but we have to keep reminding them that you can't join every student conversation in the cafeteria, for example. You don't expect to. Just take a bit of it. Join a bit of it. <coughs> so this top person here, it might be a bit difficult to read this. I'll just read out some bits of it. I think with practice, the learning design will be very helpful in creating new and adapting existing lessons. I like the idea of being able to share resources and adapt what's already in the browser for our own use. Now, that's a pretty critical concept because when you're thinking about using learning technology, this is an immensely difficult thing to do. We've had, just over the last decade or so, thousands of new technologies being developed, pretty much all of which are useful and interesting in education. Over the previous several millennia, we had the invention of you know, things like writing was pretty useful, and <clears throat> the printed book, and films for a bit, and audio, radio, and so on. I mean, there were a few technologies, but by and large, they didn't change all that much. But now, <clears throat> now in the last 10, 20 years, wherever you like to date it from, We've got all the digital equivalent of all those things, plus different kinds of combinations of them, plus all sorts of other things as well. <clears throat> so it's immensely difficult to keep track, keep up to date. It's not something we can do as an individual. We have to do this as a community. We have to see what other people have done, build on each other's work. So if somebody's prepared to say that, yes, I can see the value of being able to start with what someone else has done. It's not something we do in the context of teaching. We do it in research. You wouldn't dream of going into a research field without first seeing what everybody else has done and then using that, finding out what you can do to add on to that, 
doing it and then giving it back to the field. That's how we work as academics. But not in teaching, it's curious. So in a way, what we're trying to do with this is to bring the process of teaching innovatively into that space of collaborative, academic, sharing and building of knowledge. It's a bit like that. And then this person says, um, uh, I've already explored it, trying to connect it, um, could help me plan my lessons, good tool, just need practice. I, like, I think I like collaboration. Teachers could share, build lessons, rebuild lessons, could, could save a lot of time. Working in teams is better than individually. It's going to be a time and lifesaver, maybe. Um, I think it's a useful way to plan, but perhaps I need more practice. It takes time right now because I'm not used to working like this. And that's going to be a problem, you know, getting it into people's normal practice, certainly. I could really cope with borrowing and sharing. Why reinvent the wheel over and over again? Yes, that's exactly the point, really. We should not be working as isolates, as individuals. We should be working in a much more similar way to what we do in research. <clears throat> so that's the notion of using something like the MOOC environment for trying to support that kind of community learning process. I think an interesting research issue is what prompts good collaborative discussion. And that's something we started thinking about in the first MOOC I was describing, the one for ICT and primary education. And it was very noticeable that that year there were five new MOOCs coming for the first time through the University of London. And all the other four, in rather different subject areas, had that sort of proportion of those who watch video. So this is looking at the proportion who watch video of the total students and the proportion who got involved in discussions, it was sort of languishing down here at the 2 or 3% for all the others, which is standard for MOOCs, and ours was nearly 40%. <coughs> so we don't, really know <coughs> we don't really know why. I think it's partly because it was a much more homogeneous cohort of people, and most MOOCs, if they're something like everything you ever wanted to know about history, you know, you've got all kinds of people pining in there, and they're, they're not homogeneous. Whereas, when you've got most people are primary school teachers or their head teachers or their policy makers in that area, <coughs> they've got a lot to give each other and they've got a lot to say to each other. So I think that certainly helps the cohort being all the same. I think the study guide approach might have helped because it did handle people through a bit more. And we gave them particular topics to discuss. So unlike the Coursera standard approach, which says... Here's all the videos, and here's a place where you can go and chat about them. Um, ours was structured much more the way the future learning one is, which is, here's a video. Now, what's interesting about this video is this. Do you think you could apply that in your context? Um, what have you got to say about the way they did this? So there were much more focused discussions, and I think that might have helped too, but you know, that's still for investigation. And the way in which we get people to share ideas, one of them is through tools like the Learning Designer, another is Padlet Warm. If, I don't know if, if you haven't met it, it's a wonderful tool. Um, it's just an electronic pin board, really. And so what we were doing was um, we asked people to share their ideas for how they use their virtual learning environment for blended learning. So what you do is you double-click on here and a little thing opens up where you can type in your name, a link to what you've done, and a short description of it. So it's a wonderfully visual way of being able to scan through. And this, this is sort of you know, six inches worth of several meters of um, contributions here. But <clears throat> it's a great way of being able to visually scan what might I be interested in here. This is something about formative and summative feedback. I'm interested in that. And then scan through the arts more and see what people have done. So <clears throat> it's not exactly the academic journal where you can browse through the topics you're interested in. But it's beginning to get into that sort of direction where you make public your nice idea that you can share with the rest of the world and you can talk about it. So having put all this on here, you then go back to the forum and discuss it. So that's what's intriguing about this, I think, in the context of um, uh, professional development. We did have teachers from all sectors, actually, although it was 56% on, on target, the target audience 
from the vet sector. There were lots of people coming in from higher and school education. I think mainly because there's not much else for them to introduce them to these kinds of things, unless they go and do an MA or something, which is difficult. Um, looking at their improvements, we have this, these quite complicated questions here. These are quite easy. Confident about using the learning approach, 55 before, 77% after. Aware of tools and technologies available to create well-designed, 45% before, 89% after. I don't have the necessary skills, 52% disagreed with. In other words, I do have the necessary skills. And that increased to 67%, I do have. It's kind of difficult to work the double negative, but you see what I mean. I think it was a context in which people felt able to increase their sense of self-efficacy with respect to how they use these things. We also collected, of course, all, those, all that data is automatically collected by the platform. The before and after data, the amount of um, involvement, engagement in discussion and so on, all of that's automatically collected, which is one of the great things about using um, digital platforms, of course. But we also wanted some qualitative data, so found some people who would be, were prepared to be interviewed about the impact it had on them. It's terribly difficult to get good impact studies in the context of this kind of thing because you've got to find people, you've got to persuade them to talk to you, you've got to follow them through. You don't, you don't have emails. All you can do is put in a plea saying, please send us your email if you're prepared to help us. Um, and you know, it's hard for people to say yes, they're very busy and so on. But we did get some nice case studies out of it. Um, this from a colleague who was using it as part of a PGCE program and was saying, well, I've observed students in their placement for a long time. We've encouraged them to use ICT and blended learning, but most of the time I'd see PowerPoint and interactive whiteboards. Now, since the MOOC, a lot of them have moved forward with blended learning and are now experimenting with some of the packages they've used in the MOOC. Another one says, we shouldn't be reinventing the wheel. For me, it was quite a revelation. When I looked, there was such a lot out there, you don't actually have to make your own screencasts. So again, that notion of sharing, not having to do it all yourself, is coming through. I saw the flip learning thing and just wanted to have a go with that, so it's <coughs> motivating. You see other people doing your thing. Um, we incorporated it into the Digital Transformation Project to introduce trainers to the concept of blended learning and the use of digital tools within the classroom and outside the classroom. So those were the kinds of quotes that gave us some assurance that it's doing what we wanted it to do. It's, it's, it's raising their motivation, it's making them feel they could do this themselves, they're putting it into practice. And how might it change practice? Well, I think this is another interesting kind of research area that we should be looking at collectively. Um, because when you think about it, digital demands a new distribution of teacher time. And this is an exercise I've been through in workshops and run every year with my master's students, all of whom are teachers in different sectors. And it's to say, how do we conventionally distribute our time as teachers? Take a notional 100 hours, sort of two weeks of your, your typical life, because teachers certainly spend an awful lot of time working. And how would you proportionately distribute that 100 hours over the typical kinds of activities like doing class presentations, doing administration, doing your own original creative design, adopting and redesigning other things? And you can see the kind of way this comes out. So collaboration very low, small group guidance quite high, individual guidance quite high, individual marking also high, professional development very low. So that's what they think of as being a kind of standard traditional approach. And then we say, think about blended learning. If you're being, bringing digital technology in as much as you can in the ways that we've been discussing in the course, we get that kind of spread. And the main differences are that class presentations dropped a lot, um, administration has dropped a lot. I have to think, I think that's sheer fantasy as far as I can tell. As soon as you bring <laughs> digital into administration, it goes up a lot, but you know, that's the fantasy. Original design actually, interestingly, stays about the same. And I think that's because although people are thinking about doing more adoption and redesign, borrowing from others, <coughs> you're still thinking about doing a lot of your own. And of course, when it's digital, it probably takes more time than what it does in the, um, you know, making a video does take a lot of time. Um, more collaboration, more small group guidance, because you're 
you're shifting some things to other areas. Individual guidance, individual marking goes down because computer marking goes up. And professional development goes up again. Another fantasy figure, I suspect. So the new distribution, I think, prioritizes this specialized in innovation, which you can do as an individual and share with the rest of the world. That would be great. So everybody's innovating in their own area. More generalist adoption, adaptation, and collaboration of the kind I've been describing. More learner guidance and more professional development and sharing. So that would be the ideal for the way that the teaching community works. Could we make it work that way? Does it work that way? It's, um, it's an expression of the hopes of our young master students who are in that profession, and that's what they would like to do. That's what we should be able to support them in doing. But the other end of that, what about the, the students? Well, this is what we did here was take a particular learning design for how students work in a standard 60-minute class and then do some homework afterwards. And the one they happen to be doing use these four learning types. Now, these come from the conversational framework, which I wrote about in a recent book on teaching as a design science. There are six altogether, so the two missing are learning through practice and learning through discussion. Because I make a, a distinction between discussion and collaboration, because discussion allows you to agree to differ. It's not as challenging as learning through collaboration, where you're asking students to make something together. It might be something as simple as just defining a concept or something, or something as elaborate as a project. But when you've got to collaborate, you've got to chase down and negotiate the ideas and make sure you do agree, because you've got to agree on that thing. So collaboration, I think, is importantly different from discussion. And creating a new distribution for the learner, then, rethinking that learning design, what they came up with was something where you had a bit less learning through acquisition, a lot more inquiry, a lot more collaboration, a lot more production. In other words, the active learning components of those. And, of course, this time went up a lot. And what they ended up with was, instead of 60 minutes in class and 30 minutes of homework, they had 60 minutes in class and three hours of homework because they were supported digitally in these kinds of um, areas. So the plan was that they would have this kind of thing. They would move to podcasts or videos or something like it for the um, learning through acquisition. They still had some, of course, class presentation. Uh, learning through inquiry by researching things on the web together. Um, collaboration. This is illustrated with something which comes from the Open University where people go out and take pictures of things in the natural world and try to identify them. So this is a picture of, I believe, a sea anemone and where they found it, and then they kind of crowdsource the identification process amongst other students, and then somebody comes in and says, that's wrong, it's this or something. But it's a kind of, it's a nice collaborative process. And then learning through production, they're making their own website or their own animation of a diagram or something of that kind. So that's what they were building into this. And then it was a bit difficult to separate out which bits were the class and which bits were the homework, because they were all kind of mixed in together. So if we compare those two kinds of things, the way that teachers work and the way that students work, could we see this as being um, a transition to new ways of doing teaching and learning? Well, it's important to notice that the good use of learner time is not a zero-sum game. As for the teachers, they were constrained to say, you've only got 100 hours, and if you're going to use blended learning, you've still got to only use 100 hours. So that was an important constraint. But for the learners, they've got to be doing a lot of learning beyond your time with them. So what this has done is to increase the kind of supported learning by using digital tools. So it's not a zero-sum game for students, but it is using the same teacher time, but with a better distribution of how they're spending their time. And it includes all of these things, like not just what you're doing on your own, but how you're doing work with other teachers as well. So that should enable us to generate more and better use of supported learning time. But, of course, teachers have to lead the change. 
So that's why I think we have to have something like this co-construction of innovative pedagogic ideas through sharing, peer review, that kind of thing, where teachers are taking the lead, they're empowered to take the lead, they're given the time to take the lead, and they can do it because they're not doing everything. They're being able to build on each other's work as well. So this is where I want to pause for a minute and think about, ask you to reflect on, do you think it's viable and feasible to be working in a slightly different way as teachers? To work with researchers, to co-develop and test new pedagogies in the kind of way that I was mentioning, and then maybe even to crowdsource the data from their own practice. Because if you're trying out a new way of created, creating a blended learning classroom plus homework practice, maybe something like a flipped learning approach or something like that, can you get that closely enough to find that it could, you could crowdsource the data which tells you how well that works in comparison to doing other ways of doing it. And if you're working with researchers who can advise <coughs> on how to collect the data, how to make sure it's comparable and so on, maybe that would be feasible. Or orchestrated by something like a MOOC. So let me pause first of all to see if there are any questions of clarification. As opposed to completely online, because the MOOC is the yeah. idea of it is that it's completely online. Yes, the MOOC itself is online, but it can still get people to think about how they're using their place-based education yeah. and incorporating the technology. So, I mean, of course, we could be getting them to think about online learning on its own, but the value of blended learning is that you then get people thinking about how they can change their current practice, most of which is very much place-based, institution-based, so maybe a stepping stone to thinking about wholly online, but that was the reason. I'm just wondering about the role of the facilitator in, in the MOOC that you did, and perhaps with regard to the first question there. Um, so in your MOOC, yeah. with 18,000 participants, I think, was there a facilitator or several facilitators? And Yes, um, those 18,000 were over the six, we had two courses which ran three times each, so all together that was 18,000 active people. Um, and yes, the, the two educators, which was myself and uh, Neil Morris from uh, Leeds, were in there, I guess we spent something like half an hour a day during the weeks we were particularly responsible for in the forums. And we had digital champions identified as um, other people coming in who were also helping that. And that is quite important because it gets a sense of togetherness. It's not, you're not just sort of, okay, there it is, off you go. It's quite important. So, yeah, I think that's a good, good question. Yeah. And I think it would be important then, you know, in work between teachers. And in work with teachers, yes, absolutely. <coughs> you know, you need that, yeah. that teaching presence or, or yes. colleague presence, whatever you want to call it. Yes, I agree. And I think especially for some, if, if you're trying to, to do this sort of thing, to co-develop something, then you should be in there because you are co-developing. That is rather the point. So I think it wouldn't be quite the same as the, the kind of MOOC where it's meant to be more like normal professional development. It's, it's a bit more balanced than that would be. Yeah? To test new pedagogies, how do you test the pedagogy? Through that. <coughs> okay. Basically, uh, the idea. What are you looking for? Well, you're you're looking for whatever increase you want in the kinds of learning outcomes you've got. So, <clears throat> if you if you were looking at um, how students develop a particular kind of skill, for example, and if that were a practical skill, you might get students to be filming. I'm just this is one of the things we're thinking about at the moment. Actually, how we do it. Um, students might take <coughs> videos of, of what they're doing and then compare that with a model video, for example. Um, they might peer review each other's work. Would that work well? Um, do you get a better quality of submission from this kind of formative process than you would if, you, if they just made the submission directly? So that's a, a, a question about the effectiveness of these new ways of doing things. 
filming and assessing your own work against the model, peer reviewing other people's work, before you submit. Okay, so it's quite a clear question. Do you get better quality <coughs> submissions from that process? And if you're getting lots of teachers involved in that process, who can all be trying that out, as long as you've got that fairly well specified, you can be doing that testing on quite a large scale. At the moment, what we tend to do is we run a pilot, and we see how it works in these few schools or colleges, and then say, okay, this is great, it works fine, and you roll it out. But rolling it out, it just kind of disappears because you haven't engaged all of those teachers in the problems of thinking about how to make it work, which is what you do in the pilot. You get very engaged teachers working on that. So that same thing doesn't necessarily work when you then roll it out. But if everybody's been involved in that piloting process all the way through, it's got a better chance of doing something good. But the question of crowdsourcing the data, of course, you've got thousands of different contexts. So... <clears throat> And you've got one kind of measure. You're trying to get everybody to measure whether the quality of the submission has improved. So that's the kind of way it might work. Yeah, there's one at the back end from there. Um, I, 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 I agree. I think there's lots of opportunities about crowdsourcing and finding those things out. But um, I'm always slightly worried that you then you could then find out that a particular you know, particular technology does give you better outcomes, whatever they might be. But you might be finding out something that works for teachers who are engaged with professional development, with learning in their own time, with, with going on to MOOCs. Not necessarily a technology that would universally uh, change education for all teachers. And I, I just guess it, it might be slightly easier for things to work if, if they're being implemented by teachers who have enrolled in a MOOC and, and therefore might be just more engaged in professional development trying new things out. And I, I always <coughs> wonder a bit about the bias of online methods because they exclude people who don't use the internet, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, yes. But I think whatever kind of methodology <coughs> we use, we're going to be having some kind of bias in it. I mean, it is a problem with the, the pilot rollout method, is that you spend so much time nurturing that pilot group they're no longer representative of everybody else. They've become something else. So this is a bit of a problem with that. Um, getting everybody engaged in this from the word go seems like a better effort. Now, you're right, but you're getting the people who are in the digital space. And it may not be, I mean, we're talking about new pedagogy. It may not be particularly technology-oriented. It might just be a new way of running discussion groups or something. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be technology-oriented. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's worth a try. <laughs> it's different. Do you think that it's possible to apply this to higher education? So you picked on teachers in school. No, in no, no, this is anybody. Oh, okay. All, all, all sectors. Okay, so. Yeah. I mean, we had all sectors coming into this vet sector one because there wasn't anybody anywhere else particularly for them to go to discuss this. So I, I don't see why it shouldn't work in, in all sectors, really. So in which case, to clarify then the first bullet point about to working with researchers, mm. are the teachers themselves not researchers? Is, is there something that you feel that's special about actually having someone else do research on your teaching rather than you doing it yourself? No, I think you are trying to get people to do research on their teaching. That's exactly almost the point. Is to, is to take a problematized approach to teaching, is to treat, te treat teaching as something like a design process, yeah. where you have the best idea you can, you try it out, you expect to fail, and you expect to redo it. And sharing those failures and lessons learned is more efficient than keeping it all to yourself. So it is meant to acculturate that notion of um, we can't get it right first time, let's explore this, let's experiment, and so on. And you could keep it to quite small bits of teaching, and it doesn't have to be a whole term's worth of stuff, it can be just one activity, um, and get a sense of how well that's working and, and how that works in a range of different contexts. Because otherwise what we do is we say, this is a great idea, here it is, now go and all, all do it, 
And it won't work everywhere. And we don't learn that. But I don't see why it shouldn't be in all sectors. So I would change that first bullet point to work as researchers then. So that people are... Part, well, part, of, part of being involved in this is that you are reflective on your own practice. So you're a practitioner researcher, whether... But I think that's what teachers are, or should be, and should be seen as. Okay, so yeah, why create So the researchers are the people who, who are there to try and make sure that this is a, a viable process, it's valid, mm -hmm. in terms of the kind of things that we're learning from them. And, and that there is a certain amount of specialist knowledge there and understanding how difficult, you've got to know how difficult it is to do things in a new way in a school, you know, teachers find it immensely hard to do that. So you've got to have people who've got some understanding of that so that you orchestrate this process in an appropriate way. So I think that could, could work. Sorry, I never came back to you. Yeah, I'm not sure, I don't know how relevant it is, I'll just throw it out anyway. Because of being a MOOC, possibly, and it just being huge, I just wonder about ethics, um, particularly when it comes to carrying out research. So teachers are researching something in their exactly. particular context. You know, the data that might yeah. come out of that, possible ethical Absolutely, which is one of the reasons why you need knowledgeable researchers in their orchestrating that process, so that they make sure that everybody anonymizes the data, or if they're sharing data, it's just generalized and anonymous, and so you've got to take care of all those aspects of doing research, and sourcing data, sharing data, and so on, yeah. Um, but what we really need to know is, did it work for you? You know, what, what, and what is the assurance that it worked for you? What kinds of tests did you run, and what kind of results did you get? You don't need to know anything about the individuals at all. Um, it's just sharing the, uh, the practice, really. Okay, let me move on, and we'll come back to um, a bit more at the end, because I just want to, to take a bit further that idea of the MOOC as an educational research tool. And what we were really talking about there, I think, was <coughs> using <coughs> sorry, <coughs> the MOOC platform to orchestrate teacher-researcher collaboration in testing new digital methods for teaching and learning. Of course, it could be any kind of digital methods, but thank you. Um, <clears throat> but um, I'm most interested in new digital methods. And then building and curating that community knowledge about the teaching and learning. And the curating is another part that the researchers have to do, because you can't get, expect everybody else to sort of consolidate all that, write it up, and discern what the key messages are and so on. So that would be another part of that process. And um, just again to uh, try and apply that to a particular um, example, this is from a current EU project, um, which is about developing a competency framework for digital skills for teachers. So it's one where we're actually trying to do this process of developing a MOOC as, part, as a research tool in this project. Um, it's called TETSAT, which stands for Technology Enhanced Teaching, a self-assessment tool. It's run from Brussels with 12 countries in the EU, not including the UK, sadly. Um, and like various other teacher organizations, it's developed a competency framework. UNESCO had one, the EU had a previous one, um, ISTE in the States had one. These are all teacher organizations that say we really need to define the competencies that teachers should have. And as the digital world is coming along, we need to define it for those. So a framework like this has these different areas, and it begins with digital pedagogy, per se, and then the framework defines what it means to be a newcomer, a beginner, capable, proficient, and expert. And this is, again, this is about six inches of what's probably about 100 meter long. <laughs> and you can see this is, this is number 1.1.1, so you can begin to imagine how much of this there is. It, you, you sort of lose the world to live after you've been looking at this for about three minutes. Um, and so the, the newcomer is someone who uses ICT for personal issues but limited experience teaching. Middle one, I develop and implement ICT as a tool to support common methods and tasks but no further evaluation. An expert, I fully reflect upon my teaching through critical and systematic assessment. Well, we all do that, don't we? Yes. So, so we're all going to see ourselves as experts. And this is a self-assessment tool. 
So what you do is self-assess which level you think you're at as you work through it and create exemplars for it. Um, and then come back a year later and self-assess again so that you're making sure you're, you're moving on or your school does it or your district does it or your ministry does it. Um, so this is all working through ministries of education in, um, in these different countries. So you can see why the UK wasn't involved. Um, and of course the challenges, I think, and I'm um, joining this project as a kind of pedagogy advisor, something like that. So for me, the issues are how to engage teachers in doing this, which looks heavy and difficult. And not only that, but how to keep the framework up to date. Now, the problem with a competency framework is that you do a lot of work, and they've been working for about 18 months to develop this, lots of workshops and testing and retesting and evaluating and so on. So they've got this nice framework, but you know, at what point of time is that relevant? Things move on. Teachers get more competent with experimenting and finding things out. And these kinds of descriptions are going to have to change, and some of these are going to be just irrelevant. Um, and tools change, and the way teaching practice changes. So how do you keep the framework up to date? Or do you just say, well, it's only going to last two years, but you know, the research lasts two years to create it in the first place. So we've got a MOOC to engage teachers and update the framework. That's the point of it, to take those same teachers and quite how it will work out in the end, I'm not sure, but th this is the first run at devising this. In week one, we crowdsource competency exemplars in terms of the existing framework. Week two, we create community refinements of competency definitions. Week three, we do the peer assessment and review against the things. So <clears throat> in week one, the essence of it is to collect case study exemplars. So you're looking at what teachers are doing. So that you're open then to saying, well, here's something we haven't got in the framework. Um, and then we curate the examples. That's, there are some things which have to be done centrally to do this. Then in week two, um, you get the participants to tag these exemplars with their own descriptions. So they're all farmed out to different people. You get five people for each thing, tagging them, so that we get the community's description of what thing, these things are, not just the researchers and the experts' definition, which is what's in the framework. And then use some kind of crowd-ranking method to refine the definition, so you've got a kind of, you're, you're kind of workshopping with the teacher community itself, in a way. And then in week three, we use that same tool to create self- and peer-assessment rubrics, so that's, again, that's the community defining what we mean by these things, and then uh, submitting their own outputs. And it might be something like a bit of video, it might be a lesson plan, it might be um, uh, a, a particular um, device they've used, the way in which they use a particular um, device or tool. Um, and then invite participants to submit their own uh, TED outputs for the competency category of their choice. So they take some category or other with their own self-rating. Those then get peer-reviewed, and then you end up with a kind of um, peer-assessed level of where you are on this competency framework. And then, of course, you've got to make that sustainable. There's no point in this being good for just a year or so. So you've got to keep running it. But we've got the means now, through this process, to keep refining the definitions, to keep collecting exemplars and to track the changes in competency levels as well. So that over the years you hope that the whole thing will um, be able to take care of itself by the community owning what that competency framework is. And it's not just something that remains static for 10 years and then everybody thinks it's got to have another go. So that's the idea. Um, and what I think this is giving us is an innovative methodological contribution. It's a kind of participatory design science approach. I mean, to go back to the teacher as researcher, that's what the teacher is doing, is becoming this kind of person. And if we work in this way, I think we, we have some chance that teachers get a sense of status and self-efficacy, which is does help them actually engage in this process. It's not just something being forced on them from on high, from their Ministry of Education, so now you've got to go and tick all these boxes. That would be awful. They've got to engage in the value of this. 
It can go for any country. It can be pretty much automated. You've got to have some people in there for some of the time, just to show they have a presence. But it can run at scale. Um, you've got people contributing their own exemplars, and participants can be in individually tracked and then selected to become mentors and so on. And that process of automated and iterative design could just keep going on and on for uh, long-term updating. So to come back to that notion of educational research and what it could contribute, orchestrating teacher-researcher collaboration and building and cur curating community knowledge about teaching and learning, I think we could be doing for education. But of course, all of that we could be using MOOCs for, for absolutely any subject area. So it's really about discipline research, orchestrating professional researcher collaboration in testing new methods of practice, whatever they happen to be, and then building and curating that community knowledge about the field. But it's that professional researcher link professionals becoming part of the research process and coming into that updating of the current methods that's important. And I want to just end by giving you an illustration of what that could look like because one of the MOOCs running through UCL is on the many faces of dementia. That's the course. If we go into looking at one of the things which is about um, the symptoms of completely forgot areas, behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. So you see the familiar structure in FutureLearn of a video presentation and dynamic links to other resources and tools and discussion and debate. But this discussion and debate is much sparser, notice, than the previous one was, because this is all sorts of people coming in here, because this is carers and family, as well as a range of different kinds of professionals. So you have some people here talking about how well this has been explained, I'd love to contribute more, but I'm powerless to do so without further information. From a compassionate point of view, I think it must be very difficult. This person is saying, I wonder if FGD follows the same pattern of plaques and tangles causing the breakdown of neurotransmitters. That's, that's a professional, clearly. This is a brilliant way of explaining it. That's what my mum had. It's very sad to see them like that, especially as they act entirely out of character. So this is a family member coming in. This is another professional. My experience is very limited. It may be because I work with an older client group and so on. So you've got the opportunity to bring all kinds of professionals in. And one of the new ones about perioperative medicine speaks to people anywhere in the world who's, who's in a, a clinic or a, a surgical theater of some kind and the ways in which they're, they're dealing with new methods to, to improve perioperative medicine. So this is why I think it's exciting. Undergraduate education, no, not particularly. I think the impact's uncertain. It doesn't really work for marketing terribly well. If it works at all, it's when it's student-driven and they say, I really need more on this topic, and they go and find something, and that does happen. So that's fine, but it's not really a major impact. For de professional development, yes, I think it is good, because it has a very good reach because it's online, and most people in professional areas are online. However, it's a poor reach to the tech-averse, which I think is exactly the point that you were making at the back there. You know, you're getting a particular kind of group here, and you have to be aware of that. But it is good for practice and for updating practice and allowing those professionals then to cascade their knowledge to whoever their local group happens to be, and that's where you get beyond being online. You get local then, place-based. So that's what we have to rely on with our MOOC for um, the vet sector, for example. There's an awful lot of people not in there. We have to rely on the people who are to get to those people. So it's a second-order impact. And then in educational research, I think we could be thinking about the MOOC as a research tool for creating a new kind of paradigm for participant design-based research of the kind we really need. We've got some time for questions. So, uh, is that all right, Helen? Yes, thank you very much. Pause there. Okay.